Hebrews chapter 10. As I was thinking about how to introduce this passage, lots of different ideas. But then one particularly struck me that I think captures it, one that we're familiar with because we've been thinking about it in the children's address, Pilgrim's Progress and the journey from the city of destruction to the heavenly city. And there are many times in that journey where Christian gets a glimpse of the city in the distance. He sees the light coming from the city, the heavenly city, and he's encouraged to keep going. At various points in the journey, sometimes he's given a pair of binoculars or a telescope to see ahead. And he sees its beauty and its radiance. And it encourages him. And then at other times in the journey, he's reminded of where he's come from, the city of destruction. And he sees along the journey scenes of destruction. And he is likewise encouraged not to turn back. And yet, on his journey, he meets people who are doing that very thing. They're turning back. He meets mistrust and timorous. I think they're turning back because the hill of difficulty was was too difficult for them. He meets others along the way who find the journey difficult and, and who want to go back. And as he thinks about destruction and what destruction means, he is spurred on to keep going. And really, that's what that this chapter is about. It gives us a glimpse of what is ours and what lies ahead. And then it gives us a glimpse of, as it were, what lies behind. And then it encourages us uh, to keep going. Everything in this letter has been building towards this word, therefore, in verse 19. It is a mighty therefore. You remember that the, the readers of this letter are Jewish Christians who are discouraged. They are downhearted. They are thinking of giving up and going back. They are disheartened by the smallness of things, by the lack of majesty in their surroundings as they gather for worship. They are disheartened by the fact that all that they are being asked to believe is so unseen, whereas what they had was so highly visible. The priest, the sacrifice, the temple, the Day of Atonement, It was all so obvious and clear. And the writer has been setting out the greatness of their salvation, and in particular the greatness of their Savior. And early on in the book he asked the question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And in a sense that verse sums up this chapter or this passage perfectly. We see the greatness of the salvation. We see the danger that we're in from which we need to escape. And then we are called not to neglect or not to ignore it. Don't quit. If you wanted a a heading for this sermon, we might call it no reasons to quit. No reasons to quit. Don't quit, he says. The privileges are glorious. The alternative is terrible. So keep on going. So there's our points this evening. First of all, the privileges are too glorious. He wants his readers and he wants us to see the privilege 
and the glory that belongs to the Christian. Therefore, in light of all he said in chapter 1, verse 1, right through to chapter 10, verse 18. And we could go through all those chapters and pull out all the things the author is thinking about when he says, therefore, because of all of that. But actually, he gives us his own summary, which is really helpful. He recaps chapters 1 to 10 in two great statements with the word since. Verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Verse 21, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Remember, he's writing to people who are thinking of giving up Christianity, thinking of walking away. They've lost sight of what they have. And the writer sets out two things here. He says, this is what we have. Therefore, since we have confidence, to enter the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, why walk away when you have this? And we're only going to, in a sense, skim over the passage this evening. We could spend weeks on this chapter. And indeed, we've dug into it in more depth at a communion time previously in both congregations. But I want us to, to, to see the overall uh, section from verse 19 to the end. And we want to see, first of all, uh, as we think about uh, the privileges are too glorious, we want to see, first of all, that we have access. We have access. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Just think on what we've been hearing over the past weeks. Think of the, the tabernacle and its setup. There was the courtyard, the outer limits beyond which the ordinary people could not go. And then inside that there was the, uh, the holy place. And inside the holy place, or that the tabernacle divided in two, there was the holy place and then the most holy place. That was God's space. And these had circles of access, of, of restriction. Anybody could stand outside the courtyard. Inside the courtyard, the Levites and the priests. Inside the holy place, Aaron's sons. Inside the most holy place, nobody. That was God's space. God's room. God's throne room. And only on one day, and only one person was allowed in there. The high priest. The ordinary person wasn't even allowed inside the courtyard for the most part. They weren't even close. Now against that backdrop, our writer says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. The most holy place. And when he talks about confidence, he doesn't just mean boldness. He means we have authorization. We're allowed to come right into the presence of God. We have permission. We have an access pass into the presence of the God who made the universe, the very presence of God himself. We're allowed to come right in and to have a close familiarity with him, to be in his house, to call him Father. And I suppose... Many of us have grown up with being taught to 
come to God and to trust Him and to, to say our prayers and to, to call Him Father, that we lose sight of the incredible wonder that this is, we get to come before the God who spoke the universe into being and we get to know Him and to enjoy Him. And it's underlined for us here what a privilege this is because we're told we only get to do this because blood has been shed. And not just any blood, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, by the blood of Jesus, we're told. He took bodily form so that he would have a body that could suffer and blood that could be shed for a price had to be paid so that sinners could come before a holy God. And we have access because a new and living way has been opened up by the blood of Jesus, a permanent access because the blood is of such colossal worth. It's precious blood. And we can come because blood has been shed, a price has been paid, and a barrier has been removed, he says. He says that a new and living way has been opened up through the curtain. That is his body. There had been a barrier in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle, a curtain between the, the holy place and the most holy place to signify the place where man could go and the place that was God's place where man couldn't go, there was a separation. And then as Jesus' body was being broken or we might say torn on the cross, that curtain was torn in two, symbolizing that the way was open because the body had been broken or torn, as we might put it, and the curtain was torn. And because of that curtain being torn, we have access into the most holy place, a new and permanent and living way it's described as. This word new has the idea of it's always fresh, it's always there. And this word living describes that it's not so much a pathway as a person who's bringing us in. It's a living way. And it's been opened opened right into the very heart of heaven. Open, this, the, the word is an idea of being dedicated, like a high-speed dedicated rail link that would take the president through to the, the control center, through to the nerve center of operations. A new and living way has been opened. For who? The high priest? No, for us. Where we can come right into the control room of the universe to God, to come into His presence. And there's, there's almost a, uh, an architectural progression here. You know, it, it talks about, think of the people, they stood outside the fence, looking over the fence at what happens in the courtyard. And here we're told that they come to the place where blood has been sprinkled on them. That's the altar just inside the fence of the courtyard. And then we're told that they, verse 22, they've been washed clean. It's as if someone is taking them into the courtyard. Come on, come with me. And he takes them into the courtyard, past the altar where they're sprinkled with blood. Then he takes them past the, the great laver, it was called, the great bronze basin. And he washes them there and the stain is washed away. And he says, come on, come, keep coming. And he walks us right into the holy place and right up to the curtain, and the curtain is torn. And he says, come, come right in here. You say, but this is, 
this is the most holy place. And he says, yes, yes. The Lord Jesus Christ says, our high priest says, you can come in here too. Come into my Father's presence. Come into the presence of the one who rules the universe. Come into the presence of the one who is all wise. Come into the presence of infinite power, infinite wisdom. Come into the presence of infinite gentleness, infinite goodness, infinite love, infinite holiness, infinite beauty. Come into his presence. You know, every moment of beauty in our lives in our world, those moments that sometimes you get a glimpse of something and it's so breathtakingly beautiful that you're just struck dumb as you look at you. Maybe it's a sunset, maybe it's a vista. And all of that beauty is but a, a raindrop compared to the oceans of the world a raindrop of beauty compared to the infinite beauty and goodness of God. And we get to come to Him all the time. We get to come into His presence, to call Him Father. You get to come. You have access. This is our privilege. This is, and this is what we have now. And this is what lies ahead when it will be. We, 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 we believe it by faith now. We experience it by faith now. We experience it, as it were, in unseen ways. But the day is coming when that access will be, will be visible and tangible and it will be real and it will be eternal. We have access. And we have an advocate as part of our privilege. We have an advocate. And since we have a great priest, a great high priest over the house of God, oh, he's great. He's great. We learned in chapter 1 that He's God the Son, that He's over the angels. We, we know He's the one who spoke the universe into being by the word of His power. And He is the one who is our advocate. He's opened up a new and living way. And what's He doing? He intercedes for us. We have a great high priest over the house of God. He intercedes. He prays for his people. Uh, Hebrews 7, 24. He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. Why give up? Why get discouraged? Why get disheartened? We have access to God. And God the Son stands beside us, as it were, with his hand on our shoulder and prays for us and with us. We have an advocate. The, the Old Testament believer didn't get to go in to the holy place, never mind the most holy place. The high priest went in for him once. And now we're told that we have a high priest who comes with us and who is our advocate. Our advocate when we don't know what to ask for. He's been tempted in every way so that we can go to the throne of grace to find help. He's our advocate when we fail. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our advocate at all times. Romans 8, 34, Jesus Christ, who died and more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
He knows what you need. He knows what you need for this week. He knows what you need to cope with the news that you've had. He knows what you need to cope with the news that you will get. He knows what you need to cope with the trials you face. And he will provide and he will supply. You have an older brother who stands with his arm around your shoulder saying, Father, Father, this is what they need. Would you give it to them? This is our privilege that we have right now. We need to stop and grasp the reality of what is ours. That's what's ours now. That's what lies ahead as well. And the second thing, the, the, the privileges are too glorious to turn back, but the second thing to notice in this section is the alternative is too terrible. The alternative is too terrible. Have you ever thought of giving up? We can think that way. Well, what's the alternative if we do? We might find Christianity hard and think that there's maybe an easier way. Well, we're going to come back to verses 22 to 25 in a moment, but verses 26 to 31 set out the alternative, and they are among the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. They set out the only alternative facing these Jewish readers if they turn away. They set out the only alternative facing anybody who turns away from Jesus Christ. They fall into the hands of an angry God. They are solemn words and they are frightening words. There are only two options, Jesus or this. These verses might raise a lot of questions in our minds. Where's the God of love that we're always told about? Or we might ask, could this happen to me? Do my sins risk this? What about the times when I fall into sin, fall into temptation? There's four things I want us to briefly note here to help us and to strengthen us to keep going and to encourage us in our evangelism. Four things to note. First of all, rejecting Christ is the sin that is in view. Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. We think, well, surely in some ways any of our sin is deliberate. And so I must be deliberately keeping on sinning. We don't sin by accident. Does this verse apply to me? Verse 29 unpacks what specific sin is in view. It's the trampling of the Son of God underfoot. That's what's in view. It's not simply a moment's sin. It's an ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ after we know who He is and what He's done. We've heard about Jesus. We've seen what He's done. And we turn away from Him. And we're told here this rejecting of Jesus is this solemn and serious sin. He's the sacrifice for sins. He's the one who brings cleansing and atonement. He's the one because of whom God says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So if you reject the solution, there is no plan B. It's Christ or hell. No system of sacrifices 
not even a God-ordained system like the Old Testament would do. Someone who hears about Christ and who walks away from Christ. What a terrible thing. They reject the only solution. They fall into the hands of the living God. Where does that leave all those who rely on their good works? Or those who rely on a sacrificial system like the Mass? What happens when you say no to the only solution? You remain in the problem under God's wrath. No sacrifice for sins is left. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Rejecting Christ is the sin in view here. Second thing to note is rejecting Christ is an awful wickedness. Rejecting Christ is an awful wickedness. It's not simply that these people turn away from Jesus and find themselves in terrible danger. It's much worse. In verse 28, the writer sets out the Old Testament penalty from turning from God. And then he drops a bomb. He says, if that was what happened in the Old Testament, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? Who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Rejecting Christ is an awful wickedness. It's not simply something that leaves you in danger, but the very rejecting of Christ intensifies the danger. In a sense, the person who's never heard about Jesus is in a less dangerous position in one sense than the person who's heard about Jesus and turns away. The first person will still have to pay the penalty for all their sins, yes, but the person who has rejected Jesus will pay the penalty for all their sins and a much more severe penalty, that of rejecting and trampling the Son of God underfoot. What a, a phrase, the beloved Son. He's called the Son of God here. They trample the Son of God underfoot. Oh, how this should put forever out of our minds any thought of, of giving up on Christianity, of turning away, of settling for maybe an easier life. We would be trampling the Son of God underfoot. How it should cause us to, to grieve for those around us who've heard about Jesus, maybe in our congregation, who've attended here over the years, and to pray for them. Oh, what a terrible thing they're doing. They're trampling the Son of God underfoot. How do you think the Father would react to someone who tramples his precious Son into the dirt? Oh, what a wicked thing. What an awful thing. How we should be on our knees pleading with God. Oh, have mercy on them. Maybe members of our family. Maybe people that we've cared for over the years. Loved. Neighbors, friends. They're trampling the Son of God underfoot. They've treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them. What does this phrase mean? Which sanctified them. Does it mean that somebody could lose their salvation, that the blood of Christ made them perfectly holy before God and they would lose their salvation? Well, no, it's not possible to lose your salvation. A genuine Christian cannot lose their salvation. 
that the Old Testament people of God were a people in covenant with God. They had special privileges which other nations didn't have. And to turn away from those privileges was to break God's covenant. It was to have, uh, to have enjoyed holy privileges and then to disdain them, to turn your back on them as if they were nothing. The blood of the covenant that had set them apart, the book of Exodus, marked them out as God's particular holy people, was treated as nothing. For us today, the covenant people of God are those who profess to be Christians and their children are covenant children. And perhaps too even unconverted husbands or wives of believers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.14 that they are sanctified too. They're, they're not saved, but they are set apart in some particular way where they enjoy blessings. They get to see the reality of the gospel up close. They get to enjoy privileges that nobody else on earth has. All believers are in covenant with God. But not all who are in covenant with God are believers. They may not yet have come to faith, but yet they enjoy many privileges. And we can think of people that we know in that position. We can think of those who grew up in our churches, who were baptized as covenant children, now adults, and they have rejected Christ thus far. They have rejected the, the, the blood that sanctified them, so to speak, that set them apart. What a, a tragic thing and terrible thing. And oh, dear children of this congregation and the Milford congregation, you are special in God's sight. You have received blessings and privileges from God. It is a wonderful thing to be sitting here this evening. A wonderful thing to have Christian parents. What a blessing God has given you. But don't treat it lightly. Whatever you do, don't waste that privilege. Come and put your trust in Jesus. That's why you've been given the privileges. To bring you to Jesus. The writer goes on. He, he highlights an even a third aspect of why this is such a terrible thing to turn back or turn away who has insulted the Spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God's generosity, God's gift. He holds out new life. He makes new. He brings salvation which Christ purchased on the cross and He holds it out as a gift and these people are in danger of slapping it out of His hand the lovely Holy Spirit who sustained our Saviour, who brings the blood-bought gift of salvation to us. And to turn away, to turn back, to give up, to reject, is to slap that gift out of His hand. And, and God will not stand by and see His Son trampled on and His Spirit insulted. To reject Christ is not a neutral thing, but an awful wickedness. And so we see that to reject Christ is a wicked thing. The third thing to see in this point is that God's wrath is utterly terrifying. It's utterly terrifying. The writer says, a fearful expectation of judgment 
and of raging fire that will consume me. He says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is impossible to convey the intensity of God's holy fury. You get a sense of it when you think of why it is this way. We were hell-deserving rebels, and the triune God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish. And that Son came and He was made sin for us, and He bore our sins in His body on the tree, and He descended into hell, bearing a forsakenness from His beloved Father, who acted not as Father, but as judge. The Father's beloved Son did that. And some puny little specimen of a human being comes along and looks at God and goes, Nah, it's okay. I don't want Jesus. What volcanic wrath is about to erupt and wash over that human being? Oh, the prospect of an angry God, angry for eternity. What an awful prospect. How it should cause us to plead and to pray for those that we know and love who are facing this lost eternity, especially if they've heard the gospel and turned away from it. And then a fourth thing to note just before we leave this section, as we're looking back on our our journey from the, the city of destruction to the heavenly city, and as we're looking at the destruction that we're fleeing from so that we're not tempted to slow down, we're not tempted to slacken off the pace, we're not tempted to stop or turn back. Remember that this is what Christ faced so that you wouldn't have to. As you read these verses, oh, they're terrifying. But read them. If you only looked at this verse on its own, you'd get a very distorted view of God. But look at this verse through the lens of the cross and marvel that this is what Christ suffered for you. And as you read it, and as you read that frightening line, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hear Christ say to you, it is a dreadful thing. I know. I've been there. I've been there. So that you wouldn't have to be. And and even as our hearts quake, as we read such a passage, we should be moved to love for such a Savior. He, He did that for me. He did that for me. Why would I ever turn away from Him? Why would I not want to live for Him with every fiber of my being? So, that's what lies behind. That's what would lie in store for us if we were to turn away. This writer has a better expectation for his readers. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So if that's what lies ahead, a glory and privilege that is ours already and that we will see more fully, and if that's what lies behind, what do we do? Brings us to our final point. So, keep on believing. Keep on believing. Look at his words. He says that turning back, turning away, they're not options. He calls these believers not to shrink back. He calls them 
to persevere. He says in verse 35, don't throw away your confidence. He says you need to persevere. We are not of those who shrink back. And back up at that opening section that really acts as a summary for for all that is to come. Let us draw near, he says. Let us hold unswervingly. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Three things that we're to do that will keep us going. One, draw near to God. Draw near to God and he gives a reason. Because you are clean. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. How do you keep going? Draw near to God. This is your Father's world. And you can come right into your Father's presence with all your worries of this world. Come. Come to Him. Come to His Word each day. Come to Him in prayer. Come to Him in crisis. Come to Him with worries. Come with that sincerity of heart like a child coming to a father. Like a child plowing right into their father's office. Other people are queuing up waiting and the child just plows in. Confident that their father loves them. That no matter what else is going on, their father will make time for them. Our earthly father, whatever about earth, what our, our heavenly father, whatever about earthly fathers, they might fail at this point, but he never fails. Come often to him. Come into him in conversation. The almighty God of heaven is interested in you. No detail is too small in his child's life for him to be interested in. And you might say, but I feel a failure. I don't feel that confidence that he accepts me. Ah, but you've been sprinkled with the blood of his son. It's all paid for. Your record is clean. Ah, but I feel stained by my sin. Stained by the sins of others. Ah, but you've been washed with pure water. The writer says, come in, come in. Everything has been done to open the way. Come to him, draw near, don't waste the privilege. We can't keep going if we're not coming to our Father to be recharged and refreshed, to be reminded of his love and care for us, to be reminded of his wisdom, to sit and gaze at His power and glory and immensity and His goodness. Come, come close. Draw near to Him. Second application. Hold on. Come in. Hold on. Hold on to your hope. Hold on to your hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For He who promised is faithful. They were thinking of giving up. The writer says, you faced pressure, remember it. He says in verse 30, remember how you stood in the early days. Keep holding on. Keep persevering. Don't swerve away. Don't panic under pressure. Don't bend under pressure. Don't waver under stress. Don't falter. Don't throw away your confidence. Hold on. Look ahead. Your hope is certain. Your hope is certain because he who promised it is certain. He's faithful. He's faithful. One old writer says, He can as soon cease to exist as cease to keep a promise. The great I am 
who always was and always will be, he can as soon cease to exist as cease to keep a promise. Oh, and look, look what it's described as here. As if the entry into the presence of God was not enough. In verse 34, we're told that we have better and lasting possessions. Sometimes we feel like giving up or turning back a bit or slowing down a bit because we want to, to gather some of the things that people around us have and we feel we're missing out. I know we've got better and lasting possessions. Who cares what we miss out on? Who cares what we lose? Verse 35, we will be richly rewarded. Verse 36, we will receive what was promised. Verse 38, God's delight, well it's implied here, if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. The implication, if we don't shrink back, God will be delighted. Do you think, think of it? Think about how much, well we thought of how much wrath God had in store for those who would trample on his son. But how much delight must he have in store for those who hold on to his son? who lift up his son, who honor his son, who display the worth of his son, the father must look down and go, oh, that one gets it. They love my son. And the delight that the father would feel towards such a believer. Oh, we have a generous God who promises his presence. He promises fullness of joy. Let us hold on. Let us not swerve away. Let us not shrink back. Let us persevere. Let us keep going because he is faithful and he never disappoints. And we're part of a team. We're part of a family. I think it was the Marines. Uh, American Marines is their motto that they left nobody behind. Even if they've been injured in battle, they didn't leave them behind. Even if they've been killed in battle, they didn't leave them behind. They left no one behind and we're to spur one another on. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds because we're part of a family, we're part of a team and we're to spur each other on. You know, whenever John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, it wasn't a solitary journey. Pilgrim, our Christian, had faithful that he journeyed with. Christiana has mercy and the boys that they journey with and great heart. Being a Christian is not an isolated thing and and we need each other. One person stumbles, another lifts them up. We stumble, and another lifts us up. They stumble, we lift them up. Let us spur one another on. We've thought about this on another occasion. Just see what he says here. We're to push each other to love. We're to push each other, encourage each other to love each other. We're to encourage each other to good deeds, to be salt and light in the world. And sometimes just hearing what another person is, is doing encourages us. We think, oh, they've been doing that. I could do something similar. I could do more. We're to encourage each other in the Christian life, the writer says. We're to encourage each other by being together. When God's people are meeting morning and evening, Midweek, which should be our priority to be there. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Why? Why are we to spur each other on? Because there's a day coming when Christ is coming back. All the more as you see the day approaching, he who is coming, verse 37, will come and not delay. On that day, 
we will be fully and finally in the most holy place. On that day we will be fully and finally made holy, fully washed, fully cleaned. On that day we will see that it has all been worth it. So don't throw away your confidence. On that day it will be richly rewarded. Amen.